church, this one is Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord. So let's turn our attention once again to the scriptures, to uh, Mark's gospel, uh, a record of uh, Jesus' life. We'll be in Mark chapter 3 this morning, as David shared uh, moments ago. So let me encourage you to go ahead and open the scriptures with me to Mark uh, chapter 3 as we continue our message series, uh, the gospel of Mark, waking up to Jesus. I'm curious as we begin today, uh, did any of you watch any SEC basketball yesterday? Uh, it was quite the day for uh, basketball uh, in the Southeastern Conference. There were many good uh, games uh, that were uh, to be played and were played. Uh, Alabama played LSU and Auburn played A&M and Tennessee played Missouri, uh, Vanderbilt and South Carolina, Florida and Mississippi State, I think, right, TD, and um, Arkansas, Ole Miss, and uh, I forget all of them, South Carolina and, and Vanderbilt. I didn't watch all these. I caught a few minutes of a couple of uh, these. Uh, but a couple weeks ago, I did have opportunity to go to uh, an SEC basketball game. Uh, the uh, Auburn-Tennessee uh, game played at uh, Auburn, and so I uh, went uh, down to Auburn with uh, uh, one uh, diehard Auburn fan, And then once we got there, surrounded by a bunch of uh, Auburnites, uh, and uh, also going with us were two, uh, probably the loudest two Tennessee fans in the entire arena, Uh, one of those being your worship pastor. And um, I remember a couple times during the game, uh, David turning at me and saying, aren't you going to get excited? And two reasons why uh, I guess my excitement wasn't just overflowing uh, that night. One was, uh, and I don't think I shared this that night, the game began about my bedtime. Uh, and two, uh, I was just a neutral observer. And so, you know, typically when that's the case, uh, we uh, pick sides, pick someone to cheer for because the game is more fun when you're cheering for a certain team. I do this every year at the Super Bowl, as do most of uh, you. Uh, but in this particular case, because of my company, I decided, you know, just let's just keep it neutral. Uh, so I remain uh, neutral. Well, church, as we open the scriptures this morning and continue uh, studying this gospel and the life of uh, Jesus Christ, I think uh, the record of Mark's gospel reminds us, uh, in fact, teaches us that there is no neutral with Jesus. There's no neutral with Jesus. For if we take uh, the account of his life as recorded in the scriptures seriously, then we will begin to take his life seriously. And we cannot simply be casual or neutral observers. In his classic Christian work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, writes, uh, giving several reasonable responses uh, to the person of Jesus. I want you to hear his words. Hear Uh, these words from uh, C.S. Lewis. He writes, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. 
Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Church, there is no neutral with Jesus. If we take him seriously, if we take his life seriously, we are either drawn to him as as Lord and God, or we are repulsed by him and want nothing of him. So as we open the scriptures today, I think we see uh, three groups of people and how they responded to Jesus. So as you find your place in Mark chapter 3, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 3, we pick up the story in verse 7. Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Let's pray. Lord, we do uh, acknowledge this morning that we have gathered in the name of Jesus, for we are followers of, of Jesus. We desire to know him more and to serve him faithfully. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity and guidance by the power and presence of your spirit as we seek to rightly understand the truths of your word. Lord, that you might continually conform us more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. If you were to ask uh, those you know uh, how they would describe Jesus, or ask them about the identity of Jesus, uh, how would they respond? What would they say? Though self-professing and practicing followers of Jesus in our part of the world seem to be uh, on the decline by and large, uh, there are many, particularly in our uh, part of the world, particularly in our nation today, uh, that are open to spirituality and uh, seek to promote uh, many of the uh, uh, social justice values that no doubt surface through a reading of, of Scripture. I don't know about you, but it's been my experience that there are few, even in the West today, uh, who will directly insult Jesus, who will criticize uh, Jesus himself, the life and the teaching and, and the ministry of, of Jesus him, himself. Certainly there are some, uh, but, but fewer will insult Jesus than will criticize followers of Jesus. You don't have to search very far to find plenty of insults about Christians or about the church. Uh, some of them deserve, no doubt, many of them uh, not. Uh, but most people, I think, in the Western world today still regard Jesus as somewhat of an important figure. 
I think most uh, regard him as exactly what C.S. Lewis says we, we must not regard him as, a great human teacher. Jesus has been and is revered as a great human teacher, and even if many of his miracles, maybe even all of his miracles, seem a bit far-fetched, so the thinking goes, uh, much of what he said is still uh, rather important and should be taken to heart. Things like encouragement to practice humility and to love our neighbor and to care for the poor and to feed the hungry. This picking and choosing, this supermarket spirituality seems to be the religious mantra of our day. But I think we would be much harder pressed if we were able to enter into the first century Jewish world to find such a neutral response to Jesus. Because as we've seen in the scriptures and as we continue to see as we read the scriptures, he came uh, confronting uh, the norms of his day. Jesus came confronting the religious of his day, uh, disrupting the societal norms, calling people from all backgrounds and occupations and uh, economic classes to uh, leave a former way of living behind and to come and, and follow after him. Time and time again, he proved his spiritual authority and his physical authority through his teaching and through his miracles. Jesus was and is a rather polarizing figure if we take him seriously at all. Loved by some, hated by others. And for us, it's hard to imagine that this uh, truth-telling, perfect, sinless Son of God in human flesh would have any enemies at all. But He did. And He does. And enemies are those who feel threatened by Jesus, thus opposing Him. One group that responds to the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus as recorded in the scriptures, even in his day, certainly in his day, are enemies who feel threatened by him, so they oppose him. Mark chapter 3 verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Upon further explanation of, or exploration of that context, Jesus withdrew because he was getting away from those who were plotting to take his life, chapter 3, verse 6. He didn't withdraw out of fear. He withdrew as the Son of God in human flesh, in wisdom, knowing that his time had not yet come. That it wasn't yet time for his history-altering death on the cross of Calvary for the sins of, of the world. But Jesus came confronting Folks in his day, he came confronting the religious leaders of his day. He came confronting the Pharisees of his day. And the Pharisees opposed him because they were threatened by his teachings that exposed their inadequacies of their inadequacy of, of trying to earn right favor with God through their outward religious acts. So let me ask you today, are you threatened by a God who who says that our outward attempts to earn His favor are not enough? Are you threatened by a God that says you are lost and dead in your sin and in need of someone else to come in and rescue you, to do for you and for me what we could never do 
on our own? Are you threatened by a God who says you and I don't deserve salvation? We only receive it because the God that we worship is rich in grace. Ephesians chapter 2. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were certainly threatened by these and other teachings of Jesus, other actions of Jesus, thus they opposed him. And on the other end of the spectrum, the Herodians, secular progressives, the pagans of Jesus' day also felt threatened by him because they had never seen anyone with the type of authority he had. And this preaching clashed with their paganism. Thus, they sought to stop him as well. Let me ask you this morning, are you threatened by a God who says and teaches that supermarket spirituality will land you in hell? Are you threatened by a a Jesus who implies through his words, Mark chapter 2, verse 5, that all sin is ultimately against him and his to forgive? The Herodians, the seculars, were threatened by Jesus. Thus, they opposed him. And then finally, the evil spirits, the demons, the impure spirits of Mark chapter 3, verse 11, also were threatened by Jesus because they knew who he was. They knew he had come to conquer them, to defeat them, ultimately to destroy him. Thus, they opposed Jesus as well. See, enemies feel threatened by Jesus, so they oppose him. But there's another group perhaps the largest group of all who is enthralled by Jesus and flocks to Jesus when they believe that they can benefit from Jesus, when they think that they have something to gain. Enthusiasts or the crowds associate with Jesus when it benefits them. Enemies feel threatened by Jesus, so they oppose him. Enthusiasts associate Jesus when it benefits them. Let's look back at the text. Mark chapter 3. Verses 7 through 10. Listen for all of the crowd language here. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. In other words, they came from every direction, north, south, east, west. Because of the crowd, verse 9, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many. So that those with diseases were pushing forward to to touch him. The crowds, the enthusiasts, associate with Jesus when they believe that it benefits them. The Barna Group is a uh, resource and research group uh, that seeks to put its pulse on Uh, the culture of today and see where faith and culture intersect. And so they put out a number of studies every year. Last year, uh, they put out uh, a study uh, in the form of uh, an article to read uh, titled The State of the Church uh, in 2016. I think it was the State of the Church, the American Church, perhaps, in 2016. And in that particular article, they said that their studies, their polling have shown Uh, that 73% of Americans, as of 2016, self-identify as Christian. 
73%. So nearly three-fourths of the American population as recent as last year uh, would identify as Christian. That's rather encouraging. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? However, if you take things a step further and you ask those same folks uh, if they self-identify as Christian and if their faith is important to them and if they attend a religious service of some kind at least once a month, that number suddenly drops to 31%. You can do the math. So well over half of those that uh, profess to be Christians in our nation today uh, only associate with Jesus when they feel there is something to be gained from it. In other words, many, sometimes ourselves included, no doubt many, associate with Jesus but ignore much of what Jesus actually says. You see, many claim the name of Jesus when it's convenient, when it's comfortable, when there's something to be gained, but disassociate with the name of Jesus when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable. When considering heaven and hell, claiming the name of Jesus sounds rather convenient, doesn't it? When considering business practices that honor Christ, or income reporting that honors Christ, or sacrificial giving that honors Christ, or loving our neighbors in a way that honors Christ, or caring for the poor in a way that honors Christ, or dating relationships in a way that honors Christ, or marriage relations that honor Christ, suddenly uh, claiming the name of Jesus doesn't always feel so comfortable and convenient. See, the crowds in Jesus' day were enthralled by Jesus, and by and large, they wanted the deliverance that they felt Jesus had to, to offer. They wanted deliverance. They wanted salvation. Perhaps not in the sense that we think of, but they wanted deliverance from disease. They wanted deliverance from demons. They wanted deliverance from the Romans. As the miracle-working healer, Jesus was quite popular. But as the master who called men and women, and boys and girls, to abandon and follow after him, perhaps he had crossed the line. John's Gospel captures some words of Jesus that speak to this truth, recorded in John chapter 6, verses 26 and following. This is after Jesus has miraculously fed the 5,000. Some folks are looking for Jesus, and Jesus answers John 6, 26. Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're looking for me not because uh, you uh, have seen what I've done that attests to my identity. You're looking for me because you've received something from me uh, that you see as a benefit to yourself, and you want some more of it. He goes on, he says, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, John six twenty nine: the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, to believe in me to have faith in me, to repent and believe in me. These crowds, these enthusiasts wanted more of Jesus. 
They wanted more of Him when they perceived that there was something outwardly to gain for themselves. But what they failed to realize is that the satisfaction and the sufficiency of the inward salvation, the inward sustenance that He had come to offer far outweighed any external thing. You see, Jesus was often followed by crowds throughout His his earthly ministry. But Jesus did not come simply to gather crowds or enthusiasts. He came to produce believers. And according to the Scriptures, believers are disciples of Jesus. They are those who serve the King. They are those who follow the Master. They are students of Him. Church, enemies oppose Jesus because they feel threatened by Him. Enthusiasts gather around Him when they think there is something to be gained by Him. But there are others, disciples, who surrender to Him and long to serve Him. Disciples long to know and serve Jesus. Third and final group of people that we see in the Scriptures today, the disciples who long to know and serve Jesus. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with His disciples to the lake. Verse 9, because, the crowd he told, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. Very next passage, verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Disciples. The disciple follows Jesus, because he recognizes that he is the supreme leader. The disciple longs to learn from Jesus because she realizes that he is the master teacher. Disciples recognize the identity of Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world, as the Messiah. Thus, when it comes to questions of authority, they defer to him. Whereas enthusiasts associate with Jesus in a way that is often me-centered. What can I get from Him? Disciples have a relationship with Jesus that is Jesus-centered. How can I honor Him? See, disciples can identify with the words of John the Baptist recorded in John chapter 3, verse 30. He must become greater. I must become lesser. For disciples know the love of Jesus. They know, they've experienced the compassion of Jesus, the love of of Jesus, the deliverance of, of Jesus, the deep, deep love of Jesus, as the hymn writer writes. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Disciples have experienced the love of Jesus, ultimately a love that led Him to the cross for the sins of the world. And because they have experienced that love, they long to love Him in return. For they know that the God that we worship, the one and only God, is a God who saves. Who saves by grace through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Enemies, enthusiasts, and disciples. Which one are you? 
You see, Mark and the other gospel writers are very interested in us knowing this Jesus. They long for us to be disciples of of Jesus. Mark's aim is for us to become devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. And to that end, I believe he invites us to feel the compassion of Jesus. Feel the compassion of, of Jesus. Remember, back in Mark chapter 1, what happens after Jesus uh, heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. He enters into uh, Peter and Andrew's home, and Peter's mother-in-law is ill, laying in bed with fever, and Jesus speaks to her, and she gets up, and her fever immediately leaves her, and she begins to serve them. And as a result of that, we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 32, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Mark chapter 3, verse 10, we read, For Jesus had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Crowds flocked to Jesus. Jesus certainly knew their intentions. He knew their hearts. And he had compassion on them. Had compassion on them. A compassion that led him to heal many of them. And a compassion that ultimately led him to lay down his life of his own will, of his own accord on the cross of Calvary, on the altar of the cross for the sins of, of the world. For your sins. For my sins. Have you felt the compassion of Jesus? Mark wants us to feel the compassion of Jesus and he also wants us to see the humility of Jesus. See the humility of Jesus. The truth is that popularity often leads to arrogance. Not so with Jesus. Jesus, surrounded by the crowds, crowds pushing in on him, and they hear that he's entered a house, the house fills up to the point that no one else can go in. And though Jesus had compassion on the crowds and on individuals within the crowds, he often withdrew, Mark tells us, to a solitary place to spend time with his father. And he often left that place and start of preaching the gospel in another place where people had not yet heard from him. As if the Son of God taking on human flesh, becoming a, a baby boy, born in lowly circumstances, is not shocking enough. The entire nature of Jesus' ministry, His entire life on earth was characterized by humility, and certainly His death on on the cross, displayed his great humility. Mark encourages us to feel the compassion of Jesus, to see the humility of Jesus, and finally, to certainly hear the message of Jesus. Hear the message of Jesus. Remember the message of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Hear the message of Jesus. In other words, take him seriously. Get to know him. And if you get to know him, if you take him seriously, then I think you too will see that there is no neutral with Jesus. 
Are you a disciple of Jesus? You see, God's timing is, is perfect. Which is exactly why Jesus told the demonic spirit in verse 12 to, to be quiet. Not to spread this news because he knew that if he did, his ministry and his mission would be impeded. It wasn't quite time for him to go to the cross. But now the rest of the story has unfolded and he invites his disciples, he invites his people, he invites his followers, he invites believers to be the appropriate heralds of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus, thereby calling on others to become disciples of Jesus. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Lord, we give you thanks this morning for the opportunity once again to open your word. Lord, to hear from you and about you. And Lord, we pray, Lord, I pray that this is much more than just hearing about you, but Lord, that it would be hearing from you and that you would continually lead us and shape us that we might faithfully follow Jesus Christ as Lord and God, Son of God and Savior of the world. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us and you are a God who rescues us from our sin, the penalty of our sin through, through faith in Jesus. Lord, guide us now that we might respond to the truths of your word with praise and adoration, with confession and prayer. Lord, a sense of commitment to you, whether for the first time or a continued commitment to walk with you as your people. Lead us now that your name might be glorified in us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.